Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those in turn, in a moment I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 9. We're continuing this series on the book of Acts. I do so hope that you're enjoying it and finding it profitable. I'm enjoying preparing for it. I've I made my mind up not to just say stuff I knew, just, you know, go through the same old, same old on the book of Acts. There isn't a preacher in the world that hadn't preached every chapter of the book of Acts, but I just, just made my mind up for this series to kind of start fresh and try to bring forth something each time. And I've really enjoyed preparing for this series. Acts chapter 9. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. What a fascinating turn of phrase. I just want you to pause for a moment. I, don't, I know a lot of people don't like the King James Version, but the, the Shakespearean language of the King James Bible appeals to me. But that phrase is fascinating breathing out threatenings and slaughter. Just that his breath is filled with, with hatred for the church. You ever see a, a great stallion on a cold morning stamp his feet and you can see his breath coming out? The, the image that I see is that, or of a dragon, a great dragon that is breathing out threatenings and slaughter. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, meaning believers, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth. And heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, that is Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, that is Damascus, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice. Let me just pause a moment. The word voice, the, the word that is translated here, voice, in the Greek New Testament, is, simply means the sound. Because if you'll remember in the book of Revelation, it talks about the voice of a trumpet. So it doesn't necessarily mean they heard it as a human voice. They heard the sound. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither did he eat nor drink. It's a fascinating passage of Scripture. And the chapter which follows. I want to stay in chapter 9 tonight. As I told you at the very beginning, I'm not precisely following verse by verse or line by line. Sometimes I'm going to choose a, a thematic approach, a, an idea or concept for one Wednesday night. 
But on this particular night, we're going to stay in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is about God's connection with his church. When I was uh, in high school, just as lost as a ball in high weeds and living for the devil, a, a couple of us were at a roadhouse between um, Baltimore and Washington, and we'd been drinking some. There was one guy with us, Danny. He had been drinking a lot. And we went to this uh, roadhouse, and in a little while, a boy came in. His name was Brooke. And Brooke was one of these uh, strong, powerful, silent, kind of brooding types. He had a dark face. And, he, and I, I never heard Brooke say 10 words together, but everybody kind of steered around Brooke. When Brooke walked in the door, he was with an absolutely gorgeous girl that none of us recognized. And so we assumed that he had brought this girl from out of town somewhere. And Danny, who was with us, this boy who was about three sheets to the wind, he just began to say too loud, that girl is too good for him. And we said, you know, be quiet, be quiet. Brooke and this beautiful girl that none of us recognized went and sat in a booth across from each other. And Danny said, well, I'm going over there. I said, oh, Danny, don't do that. And he said, no, I'm going over there. Look at that girl. She didn't need to be with him. So he went in and just pushed his way into the booth beside her and put his arm around her. And I heard Brooke say, don't. It had a chilling quality to it. Danny was oblivious. So he began to talk to the girl. You don't want to be with this guy. You'll be with me. And you, just leave him. Come with me. You know, I got a car out front, everything. And she was kind of pushing away, and Danny was pulling her close. And at one point, Danny leaned over to try to kiss her on the cheek, and she went like that. And I heard Danny say, don't. And we started toward Danny to rescue him, we were too late. Brooke stood up, jerked him up by the front of his shirt and punched him backward, unconscious. Just knocked him straight back, unconscious. I saw the manager reach his hand toward a telephone and I knew he was calling the cops. So we grabbed Danny, dragged him out to the car. He was out. We dragged him out to the car, threw him in the back seat. I got in the passenger side, my friend drove and we took off trying to get out of there before the cops came. And I leaned over the back seat to make sure that Brooke hadn't killed Danny. And, and he was still unconscious. So I just began slapping him in the face like that. And finally he surfaced. And I said, what was the matter with you? Didn't you hear him? Didn't you hear him say, don't? Didn't you hear him? He said, I heard him, Mark. I heard him. I underestimated the depth of the relationship. <laughs> The entire ninth chapter of the book of Acts is about people who underestimate the depth of the relationship or underestimate some aspect of it. So we have this person, Saul. Why, what is the source of his hatred and breathing out threatenings and slaughter? His very breath is a death to the church. What, why does he hate the church so badly? Well, there, there may be multiple reasons. One may be theological. He is a Pharisee, uh, trained, educated at the school of Gamaliel there in Jerusalem. He is, uh, he is legalistic. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's, a, he's a, um, a Jew among Jews. So he might simply feel that they are blasphemers who have assigned messianic glory to this, 
to this uh, Jesus who has been crucified. Maybe, maybe there is that. But there's another thing. It is the death of Stephen. Saul stood back at the back of the crowd while they stoned Stephen to death. Saul stood guarding the cloaks, the outer garments. It's hard to get a good throw when you've got a cloak on. So they take their outer cloaks off, throw them on the ground. Saul guards them, and he watches the first Christian martyr, Stephen, die. This horrible, painful, bloody death of these rocks pummeling him in the face until he is knocked unconscious and then killed. And Stephen, it says, his face shining like an angel, looks up at heaven and listen to what he says. Father, please do not hold this to their charge. Don't charge them with murder. Don't just act as if they never did this. Does that sound familiar? It is the very spirit of Christ from the cross that is Calvary love flowing straight from the cross through Stephen. And I believe it impacted Saul that his his anger toward that is nothing but deep-seated conviction that he sees that man die like an angel of God praying for him not to be charged with the murder. And I think it just war on him. I've seen this so many times. I've seen people so angry at the church. They hate the church. They hate preachers. They're all hypocrites. And I believe deep down inside, there is some moment in their life where they saw how not how fake it was, but how real it was. Not how phony it was, but how real it was. Something that has put the, lodged the thorn in their paw and they can't get it out. And, and that's exactly where Saul is. So he's fighting. He takes the initiative. The, the Sanhedrin, the, the high court uh, of Judaism there in Jerusalem, they don't call Saul and ask him to go to Damascus. He comes with them. He says, I, I'm not even satisfied with arresting and punishing the Christians that are here in Jerusalem. I, I'm going all the way to Syria, to Damascus. I'm gonna, uh, there may be believers there in the synagogues. I'm going there and get them. And he goes to the high priest and asks for authority in writing to take a detachment of temple soldiers and go to Damascus and bring the believers back from Damascus. He's, he, this guy's cranked up, filled with hate and anger. And nearly to Damascus, this unbelievable moment, the flash of light, he is struck blind, a voice out of the sky, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He, di he didn't persecute Jesus. There is no record in Scripture that Saul of Tarsus ever saw Jesus, that he had nothing to do with the cross, had nothing to do with the crucifixion, ever met Jesus, and had nothing to do with his death or persecution. <laughs> Jesus is not confused. Why persecutest thou me? Because Saul has underestimated the depth of the relationship. That when he touches a believer, he touches the Messiah, the Christ of the believers. When you persecute the church, Jesus says, you're touching me. You, you touch my bride. You touch me. Why persecutest thou me? The next line may not make anybody else in the place chuckle. It tickles me. He says, who art thou, Lord? 
<laughs> My holy, isn't that funny? He doesn't say, who art thou? He says, who art thou? Lord, I'm thinking maybe he guessed. <laughs> who, are, who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. You know, there is that moment where God just begins to move in on somebody. What, what one might think is that, there, that salvation is kind of a, a, um, a cloud, a reality of truth, and that people run into it, bump up, bump up against it, and make a decision for Christ, but that, that salvation kind of hovers in the room as a theological truth, a cloud of truth. But what we forget when we underestimate the depth of the relationship is that, is that God is operational toward those lost people, that he's, something is happening. Before you got saved, can anybody here even, we've been Christians a long time, can anybody remember before you got saved? Raise your hand. Can you remember that? Do you remember standing in the back row of a revival somewhere when the altar call is being given and you're gripping the pew in front of you until your knuckles turn white and saying to yourself, I don't believe any of this. If you don't believe any of it, what are you fighting? What are you resisting? There, there is the operation, the, the, the reaching out of God. Salvation is not simply a, a thing that hangs in the air and people decide or don't decide. God is moving. God is searching. God is dealing with things. We used to teach this doctrine in the church, and we should return to teach it again. It's called the doctrine of prevenient grace. Prevenient is from the ancient English word prevent. We use prevent now in modern American usage to mean to stop something. But in ancient English usage, prevent means what it sounds like, pre, something that goes before an event. So prevent meant to get there first, something that happened before the thing that happened. So in modern American usage, if two people are racing and the one prevents the other from getting there, it means he tripped him. But in ancient English, if he prevented him, it just simply meant he won. He got there first. He prevented the other guy. So preventing grace doesn't mean grace that stops something. It means grace that gets there first. Prevenient grace. The operation of the spirit of grace upon people that have not yet yielded, got moving, searching. I, uh, I was invited in, in, actually in Atlanta many years ago to speak at a men's soul winning conference. And we, uh, we had taught soul winning and Saturday morning, we were going to divide up into teams of two, just two men and go out park the car at the top of a street. We had a, a streets that we were supposed to go to and go door to door, just, you know, sort of in your face to the Jehovah's Witnesses and do cold contact, knock on the door, evangelism. Hi, I'm Mark Rutland. I'd like to talk with you this morning about God. You, you know, that kind of thing. And so we divided them all up into teams of two, gave them the streets they were supposed to go to. One man was left out. And he was a great big man, uh, from South Georgia. His name was Bill. I remember him very much, a very prosperous businessman that owned a company that made manufactured homes, Bill Edwards. And I said, well, Mr. Edwards, won't you go with me? He said, great. Well, I just, I have learned if you, in soul winning, if you can just get a soul winner to taste blood one time, they're hooked for life. 
And I just wanted him to see somebody saved, and it was the most useless day of soul winning. We got nothing but but angry atheists and angry Pentecostals. We didn't get one. We didn't get one likely candidate. I was so discouraged. We were driving back to the place where we were going to meet, and we had a big whiteboard up. You know, we're going to write. This team had four. This team had two. All the the teacher. Goose egg. And as we drove by a little white frame shotgun house up on a hill, I just felt what I felt was the Holy Spirit say, turn in here and I'll give you a soul. And I said, Mr. Edwards, turn in that driveway. And he, he was driving. He pulled up a steep driveway up to this house and it was just a shack. Shutters hanging off at an angle. Grass was about calf high and rusty tricycle out in the yard and the rock and roll music just blaring. And he, he, Mr. Edwards said, Dr. Rutland, I, I just want to say to you, I think this is a bad idea. I said, you can stay in the car, but I have to go in here. Oh, no, he said, I'll go. He was a great big man. He was about 6'5". He said, no, I'll go with you. I've come this far. We got out and knocked on the door. Nobody answered the door. He said, well, nobody's here. I said, now, Mr. Edwards, they didn't go off and leave that jam box playing like that. They're around back. So he said, I just want to say one more time, I'm opposed to this. We went around to the back and there was about a 10 foot tall uh, wooden fence uh, all around the back and the music was obviously coming out of there, just blaring. And I opened the fence and walked in and realized in a split second I had walked into a motorcycle gang and there were about eight or 10 choppers in there and some very bad looking dudes. They had to jackets with the words on the back, you know, it was bandits, you know. No, it wasn't. Outlaws. Outlaws, I said. The guy right by the gate, leaning back on the bar of his motorcycle, his big hobnail boots up on the handlebars and had his arms crossed like that and tattooed on his bicep as close as I am to that speaker, it said, born to kill. (laughs) I remember thinking, I hope it's not me. No, you don't want, you want people to fulfill their destiny. You're just not sure you want to be in the story. And Mr. Edwards, this big galumpus, got between me and the door. And I realized that it was going to be an ignoble moment to drop down on my knees and crawl between his legs, or I could just go for it. And I was so frightened that I closed my eyes, and I just stepped over and popped the off button on there on their jam box, and I just closed my eyes, had my Bible in my hand, and I said, well, I've come to talk to you about the Lord. (laughs) I was so scared. I thought if one of them hits me, I don't want to see it coming. And so I just launched in. Never has the Roman road been galloped at such a clip. I preached from Genesis to Revelation in about a minute and a half. And I said, now, when I open my eyes, as soon as I open my eyes, if you're ready to receive the Lord as your Savior, I just want you to raise your hand, just right where you are. I'm going to open my eyes. When I open my eyes, you raise your hand, and I'm going to pray with you to receive Christ. <laughs> if I had a video, I could win a million dollars. I raised my hand, opened my eyes, and they were staring at me. I mean, I know this is soul-winning preacher in a suit and tie with a Bible under his arm, (laughs) walking in the middle of this motorcycle gang. They were just staring at me like I dropped from Mars, just. (laughs) 
And so I, I just, not one hand raised. And I decided I'm in for a penny, in for a pound. I just started going around to them, one after the other. I said, now, what about you? You didn't raise your hand. Don't you want to receive the Lord? They cursed me. God, I mean, they, they had a facility with obscenities that was really impressive. <laughs> they, I have never been cursed with such, with such facility in my whole life. And some of the boys spoke bad too. And <laughs> I went through every single one of them, every one of them, get the blank away from me and call me names. And I realized I had missed God. I was in there on my own because I thought, sure, I was, I'd heard from God. He would give me a soul. And so now faith hemorrhaged right out the bottom of my feet. And I'm signaling Mr. Edwards and I'm backing up. God bless you. God bless you, everyone. It's been a joy to be with you today. You know, and I'm back. And I turned, and from behind me, a child's voice said, I raised my hand. I raised my hand. You didn't see me. And I turned around, and over behind those choppers, there was a pool table with a, a canvas tarp that came all the way down to the ground like a tent. And crawling out from under that pool table was a little boy, maybe nine, ten years old, wearing nothing but a pair of white briefs. And he crawled out from under that table and he said, hey, mister. He said, I raised my hand. I, he said, I, I, I want to get saved. So I had a little pocket testament and I went over and knelt down and I said, now I'm going to pray with you and then I'm going to give you this. And one of those ladies said, you get away from him. Get away from him. He didn't even know what you're talking about. And this guy right here with born to kill tattooed on his bicep, he says, shut up, woman. He said, you ain't going to do it and I ain't going to do it, but you ain't going to stop the kid. I'm telling you, it was a case of Balaam's donkey. It was incredible. <laughs> so I prayed with this little boy to receive the Lord. I wrote his name in the little testament and gave it to him. I went back a couple of days later to check on him. And like those people, they were all gone. And I know what some people say. I birthed a baby for the sword. I've heard it before. You shouldn't do evangelism with somebody that you can't do follow-up with. I, under, I understand the theory of that. The only thing is, that's underestimating the depth of the relationship. The Holy Ghost is capable of doing a little follow-up. Beyond that, that's not even the point. The point is that the God of the universe knew that two men driving by in a car were passing just at the moment that a half-naked child under a pool table in a motorcycle gang, something said to him inside himself, I don't want to be like these animals. Something stirred inside that child. and said, I'm, there's got to be something else. And God says, turn in here. God was operative in that. Do you see that? God is stirring the child. God is stirring the evangelist. All of that so that those who make decisions for Christ, we think somehow or another it was all their initiative. God is in this. Now that's very, very important. So Saul says, what should I do? God says, go on into Damascus and it will be told you. So they take him into Damascus to Straight Street, which Straight Street in Damascus is still there, by the way. And he goes to somebody's house there, three days. 
blind, terrified, confused. He has gone, he has gone to Damascus to bust these Christians and bring them home in chains. And God has busted him. He, he has come up against something that he has vastly underestimated. And he, and he is blind, can't eat, can't sleep. Now God is involved in every part of this story. Now God speaks to a man named Ananias, a believer there in Damascus. And he says, Ananias, there's a man in Straight Street named Saul of Tarsus. I want you to go to him and lay hands on him and he will receive his sight back. He's blind. He's going to be healed in his sight. He's going to receive the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I love things in the Bible where people are real, where they're human. Am I the only one in this whole house that has ever explained something to God that he obviously did not understand? <laughs> so Ananias says, Saul of Tarsus, he's blind? He said, yes. He said, okay, see, now Lord, there's something you don't understand. We need him blind. You got him blind? Blind is good. Blind is good for us because he came here to arrest us. You probably didn't know that. <laughs> is that not funny? And I've done that. I've done that so many times. God has said, I want you to go next door and talk to these people about Jesus. And I said, okay, now there's something about these people you don't understand. That's a vast underestimation of God's involvement in the story. So God says, I am going to reveal to him what great things he must suffer for my glory. Go to him. And Ananias does. Between the time when he says, God, just leave him blind, and the time that he arrives where Saul is blind and alone, something happens in Ananias. Now see, I want you to see this. God is operating in everybody in the story. He's not just operating on Saul. He's doing something in Ananias. So when we start in the obedience toward God in some area of life, as we move forward in that obedience, that operational grace which summoned us to it preveniently will also be changing us. So you think, I can't do this. I can't possibly do this. God says, you can't now, but by the time you get there, I'll give you the grace. So Ananias arrives and he walks in. I want you to hear this. What is his opening line? He doesn't say, well, I just want you to know something. I wish God would kill you. I hate you. You've tried to hurt, you've hurt so many people and, and you, you're blind and I wish God would leave you blind, but he sent me. <laughs> that that kind of sounds like the church, doesn't it? Instead, his opening line, Brother Saul. Brother Saul, God has sent me to you. Brother Saul. <laughs> it's a guy that is filled with and breathing out threatenings and slaughter. Brother Saul. So God is operating on Saul. He's operating on Ananias. God is involved in this thing. Do you see that? We not only underestimate the depth of the relationship, we underestimate God's operation of grace. God's not sitting on the sidelines saying, I wonder how this is going to come out. He's in this. So Saul receives his healing under the imposition of Ananias' hands. His eyes are like scales fall off. He, is, he becomes a believer. 
He is filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse 18, and immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received his sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat and was strengthened, then was Saul certain days with the disciples, Christians, believers. Remember, until Antioch, nobody's called a Christian. So disciples, believers, but they are what we would call Christians, which were at Damascus. And verse 20, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, is this not he that destroyed them which were called on this name in Jerusalem and came here for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelled at Jerusalem, proving that this is very Christ. Where did all that come from? It says immediately, straightway. He began to preach. I wish I could impress this on young people. If, if they could just hear me, everything that you or life or God adds to your life along the way is something that God can use later on strategically. That's why I, I used to say to the kids at college, they say, God has called me. God wants me to be a missionary or evangelist or prophet or some God's called me to some great thing. What do you think I ought to do? I'd say, pass English. <laughs> Go to class. Get up in the morning. Eat breakfast. Go to class. Do life. Graduate from college. Here's what I'm saying. God, things, life, God, life, Add stuff into our lives. And you just think, I don't even know what, what that meant. I'm going to tell you something. As you serve God and walk with God and serve him, gradually your life makes more sense in the rearview mirror than it ever did out the windshield. And Saul has been educated, he is supremely educated. He's been to the finest seminary in Jerusalem. He is multilingual. He is... He is a Roman citizen. All of that is in that package. And he has this brilliant insight into Old Testament scriptures that's all been poured into him. He probably understands the Old Testament as well as anybody in Israel of his generation. And when Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is added to that, all of that says, oh, that's what that means. And it says immediately he began to preach Christ, showing this is what that means, this is what that means, this is what that means. He learned it, he gained it, it became a part of him. Now the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of Christ makes all that come alive. Amen. Never underestimate the power of God to use anything in your life. Anything in your life. My mother is uh, 96 now. She's still got her mind. She's, she's one tough old, uh, she's one very tough lady. <laughs> but years and years ago, when she was in her 50s, my dad was still alive then, they both received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And my mother came to me one time, she was about 
nearly 60 years old, and she said, Mark, the Lord told me to put 42 $1 bills in my purse and keep it until he told me what to do with it. What do you think that means? I said, Mother, I have absolutely no clue. I have no clue what it means. I said, just do it and wait. She carried 42 $1 bills in, uh, wrapped up in a hanky in her purse for several years. I was preaching at the Church of God in Lawrenceville one night, and the youth pastor stood up just before I preached, and he said, well, we've nearly got the money for youth camp. I just want to thank you. Everybody bought the barbecue. It was so wonderful. Thank you very much. We're only $42 short. My mother said, right here, right here, right here. I just think we live at a level that underestimates God's involvement in these things. Did God know that the church of the Lawrenceville Church of God Youth Department was going to be $42 short that specific night and get that lady to carry $42 in her purse for years until all that collided? I don't know how to sort all that out. I just know it's going to be a mistake to underestimate God and to underestimate his involvement in this. To underestimate the depth of his relationship. Now a fascinating thing happens. Saul goes back to Jerusalem. Where would he go? Would he go to the Sanhedrin that sent him there to Damascus to arrest the Christians? No. He would, he would go to the Christians. And he walks in. They've been persecuted. They've been arrested. They've been beaten. Jesus has been crucified. And Saul, Saul has been part of that. I mean, he's been driving that engine. And he walks in and says, I'm a Christian. <laughs> Can we just cut the disciples a little slack? They said, hmm, that's, we're so happy for you. <laughs> and the, the apostles said, where, where were you born? Were you born here in Jerusalem? No, he said, I was educated. I was born in Tarsus. Oh, they said, you should go home. And they send him to Tarsus. He is obviously an anointed, empowered, useful servant of God. He he's arise, arises from breathing out threatenings and slaughter to breathing in the Holy Ghost in one moment. And he is immediately useful of God in Damascus. And the, the apostolic community of Jerusalem says... Don't call us, we'll call you. Why? They underestimated the depth of the transformation. They underestimated what God could do in this guy. They might move him an inch or a few inches. Could God transform him immediately in a roadside experience of blindness, could God transform him from breathing out threatenings and slaughter to becoming an effective anointed evangelist? Just like that. And they said, you need some time to mature. Because they, they, they misunderstood. They underestimated what God was doing. I, I think it was a crucial time in Saul's life. He doesn't argue. He doesn't fight. He doesn't defend himself. He humbles himself. You should go back to Tarsus and wait till we need you. And it is some time. It is some time before they need him. He kind of goes away. 
He evidently, from his own testimony, later spent some time in Saudi Arabia. But it is a time that is unknown to us, really. A time of maybe loneliness and preparation and waiting. I believe Saul could have been used that moment in Jerusalem. It might have been a powerful moment. What if the apostles had taken him to Solomon's porch where the church was and said, this is he, and let him stand up there and preach? It might have brought a wave of persecution on him. The thing is, we'll never know. Because the apostolic community of Jerusalem said, go to Tarsus and we'll call you. And promptly forgot him. They all forgot Saul. They forgot where he was. They forgot that he was at Tarsus. They were just glad he wasn't arresting them and carrying them away to prison. That's all they cared about. They forgot him. All except one guy. His name was Barnabas. And he said, in his heart, someday he'll be useful because I refuse to underestimate the depth of God's power in his life. You can underestimate the depth of the relationship. You can underestimate the, the nature of God's involvement in the process. God is working on stuff all the time. The, I've, I've said this all my life. The next phone call can change your life. You don't know what God is doing. Way, way off in some corner of the world. I was telling pastor right before the service today. I was nearly here in my car. My phone rang. It was a guy from Reykjavik, Iceland. Said, I read one of your books and I'd like to talk to you. God's working. He's in this. He's involved in this. Underestimate the depth of the relationship. You can underestimate the involvement of God. You can underestimate the effectiveness of God. And you can underestimate the power of his transforming grace. God is in this. God is all-powerful. God can change our lives and the lives of people. Think of somebody right now. Somebody right now. Some, you say, they're, they're, everybody in the world might get saved, but not him. Vladimir Putin. Think of, you say, how in the world Vladimir Putin from Russia? There's no way. There's no way. You don't know what God is doing right now, tonight. Amen. While I talk, you don't know what God is saying to Vladimir Putin. <laughs> Think of Think of the, your brother-in-law is just crazy as a loon. And you think there's no hope for my brother-in-law. You don't know what God is doing. You don't know what God is doing. Never underestimate the depth of the relationship. Never underestimate the, the, the efficacy of God. God is in this. God's not standing over on the sidelines waiting to see how the game comes out. He's in this. Never underestimate the power of his transforming grace, what he can do in the lives of others. Never underestimate his relationship with you. God is with us. God is in this, and God is powerful. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.